From Nashville, Tennessee, this is Mysterious Matters for those who dare to think. And ladies and gentlemen, today we have on Eve Harold. Eve is currently a science writer specializing in issues at the intersection of science and society. In the past, Eve has been the Director of Public Affairs for the American Psychiatric Association and the Director of Public Policy Research and Education for the Genetics Policy Institute. Now, folks, if you were given the opportunity to extend your life for, say, a hundred years, maybe more, would you? What if by signing up for such procedures, you are able to reverse aging and gain a network of intelligence derived from nanotechnology? Well, today we are going to touch on those topics and so much more. If after listening to this program, you are interested in learning more about Eve Harold, learning more about the topic, Eve does have a very fascinating book out titled Beyond Human, How Cutting-Edge Science is Extending Our Lives. And you can find that by going to mysteriousmatters.com slash beyondhuman. And speaking of mysteriousmatters.com, if you haven't checked out the website lately, please take a look at the website. I've updated the look. As a matter of fact, I was going to go with a pure HTML design. I designed it by hand, and then I realized that it's going to take a bit longer to update every single page than I would like. Even if I were to do a few PHP includes, it was going to take a little bit too long. So I decided I was going to learn how to style WordPress a bit more than I already knew and I am mostly satisfied with the way the website looks now. More design work is going to go into it, and a few things are going to have to be changed, but for the most part, it really looks nice. Now, I know a lot of you may be wondering where I've been. Why there hasn't been a show lately? Well, it's a matter of different things, really. On August the 4th, we found out that one of my dogs, Star, had cancer. She hadn't been sick that long at all, really. And, uh... Once we found out she was sick, we took her to the doctor, and then a week later, they wanted us to bring her back for a CAT scan, and that's what we did. And on August the 4th, Thursday, August the 4th, we took her in for the CAT scan, came back, and we learned that she had an advanced stage of cancer. It had spread throughout her body. The doctor wasn't able to tell us how much time she actually had left. He recommended that we could put her down, or we could have him give us some medicine to try and see if that would help her deal with the pain, help her get a little bit better to extend her life just a little bit longer. And that's the route we decided we would go with to see if we could extend her life a little bit longer. I mean, it's hard to put down a loved one, period. And Star is very much a family member. I know some of you may not understand that, but Star is as much a family member as a cousin. You know, she, she really did mean that much to me, to my brother, to my mother, to my dad. And, um, but she died that night. She died at 8 p.m. on August the 4th. The very next day on August the 5th, I drove down to my parents' house and I dug a grave for her. My brother and I, we dug a grave for Star. What should have only taken a couple of hours took eight, nine hours because of the fact that here in Tennessee, we have rocks everywhere. If you start digging in the ground, you're going to hit rocks regardless of where you are. And, and that was the case. We just hit rock after rock after rock. And on top of that, it was a hot summer day. But we did it. It was the last thing we could do for her. So we did that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to our guest. Our guest again is Eve Harold. Eve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here with us. And I've been reading your book. It's a fascinating read. The reason why I wanted to have you on this show today is to discuss the book. But the main reason is because I've have personal experiences with individuals who have had uh, medical issues, such as diabetes. Um, their kidneys have failed, such as my father, who in 2008, both of his kidneys failed on him. He died three times on life flight, another couple of times in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And he was on dialysis for six and a half years. We didn't know at that time, but the life expectancy is between five and 10 years. Yes. Had artificial kidneys been available to him, he, he could have still been alive today. That's definitely possible. And, um, you know, dialysis isn't really a perfect answer either. 
um, because the dialysis machine doesn't really do all of the functions that a kidney would do. Um, but there are artificial kidneys in development now, uh, particularly out in, uh, at the University of California, San Francisco, um, that will perform many more of the f- kidney functions than dialysis does and would actually give patients a better quality of life. I don't think living with dia- dialysis is really a perfect answer. It was that your father's experience? Yeah, I mean, he, re- he started to regain his strength afterwards, but it always drained him. Dialysis always drained him. He was going three times mm-hmm. a week. Eventually, he went down to twice a week. He would regain his strength, but every time he went to dialysis, and it's the case for everybody that does that, they lose their strength, and I guess they're always cold because my dad was always cold. Even in 70 degrees, 75 degree temperatures, he was always cold. Wow. Yeah, the uh, um, people that I talked to who were suffering from kidney disease when I was researching this book said that after a day on dialysis, all they could do was go home and crawl into bed mm-hmm. um, and stay there for about 24 hours. And then after that, they would start to feel better. The effects of the dialysis would kick in and they would feel better. But then over time, over a matter of days, uh, toxins would continue to build up in the body and then you would have all of those side effects and feel sick until your next dialysis um, you know, uh, session. So, uh, it, you know, having an artificial kidney would be so much better for these people in terms of just having continuity of the filtering of the poisons in the blood so that they don't build up in the blood. Um, and the actual uh, kidney that I write about in the book is um, a combination of several technologies. It includes, uh, of course, obviously wireless computing, uh, nanotechnology, uh, cell technology. It incorporates uh, actual cells, kidney cells, that are gleaned from the patient's own body so that they can't be rejected. Um, and you put all those things together and you have a very, very powerful technology um, that would be not a, a bridge to transplant, In other words, something that would kind of keep people alive until a biological organ comes along, but an actual permanent implant that they would keep for, you know, we don't know how long, but potentially for uh, a good long time. And then as the technology gets improved upon, obviously you would, uh, every so often you would want to go in and maybe replace the unit and and, uh, upgrade the technology um, but I, I think this is in the works. This, is, this is called the Kidney Project, and it's going to be going into clinical pri- trials in 2017. Well, that's great. It's already shown proof of principle in animals, so uh, we, you know, there's a lot of hope riding on this particular unit. But there's a lot of others going on too in the U.S. and in uh, and in America. Some of them involve uh, wearing a device on a belt. Um, that's not ideal because you will still need to have some kind of connection to the blood system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you would have some kind of open incision on a on an ongoing basis to get the blood, uh, you know, filtering through this device. So that's not a perfect, uh, uh, you know, uh, answer to the problem. But I think that even that would be better than dialysis, just because it's continuous filtration. Yeah. And that would definitely be better than the current solution, which is uh, someone donating a kidney. And I believe the hospital told my father that he would have to get a replacement every 10 or 15 years because they won't last much longer than that. That's right. And not many people know that. Um, No organ transplant is permanent. And and that goes for hearts and lungs and, and all the organs that get transplanted. What happens is that you're suppressing the body's immune system uh, for years and years to, so that it won't reject the organ. But sooner or later, at some point down the line, your body is going to reject that organ. And when that becomes uh, overwhelming, then you either have to get another biological organ, which is hard to get, hard to find, or you get a, an artificial organ or, or, you know, you just simply don't get treatment. So, no, the transplants don't last forever. Unfortunately, they, they don't. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned possibly wearing a device on a belt to help with the dialysis treatment or the artificial kidney. And along similar lines as that, a lot of people depend on similar types of devices, such as continuous glucose meters, 
insulin pumps from adults to children. They depend on these every single day just to be able to live. So it, it would be great. It would be awesome if somehow one day if they would come out with an artificial pancreas or something along those lines to help these individuals from adults to children to no longer be tied down to these devices. Yeah, yeah, and I know that uh, people who have insulin pumps do still have um, highs and lows in their blood sugar, yes. you know, just because the, uh, the pump can't really react as quickly as a human pancreas would. Uh, your blood sugar can shoot up or crash uh, very, very quickly as, um, and, and, you know, and cause you all kinds of terrible symptoms. There is an artificial pancreas in development, though, um, that would actually uh, read uh, your your blood uh, sugar readings much more quickly and react more quickly. Um, you know, and an artificial pancreas is something that uh, obviously would help just thousands of people, if not millions of people. And the technology is coming along. We're not quite there where we have a permanently implantable artificial pancreas. Um, but as the uh, technologies that support these type of instruments are maturing and coming together and converging, um, we're probably maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so away uh, from having a permanently implantable artificial pancreas that will be close to the function of an actual pancreas mm -hmm. and certainly extend life. Yes. Speaking of extending lives, at the opening of your book, I have it in front of me, I'd have to look at it, but I know you mentioned something about in the, in the future, I don't know how near of a future, that we could potentially live to be two, three hundred years old. Mm -hmm. And you speak about that because you have spoken to the leading edge scientists, medical experts, etc. What are we looking at as far as extending our lives in the next 50 years? What's available to us in the next 50 years? Well, I think that uh, uh, definitely there are a lot of people alive today who are going to see their lifespan increased uh, beyond anything that they have ever anticipated. Um, I think uh, this is coming more sooner rather than later. And I say that because there are drugs in, in development right now um, that have been shown to increase the lifespan. There's a drug called rapamycin. It's gotten a good bit of publicity. Rapamycin has been shown to extend life in uh, uh, mice uh, by up to 20%. Now, I wrote about this in my book, and I thought it was a very exciting discovery. But just last week, there was a study that came out, uh, another mouse study, using rapamycin, uh, and giving it to the mice uh, when they're middle-aged mice, say the equivalent of a 55-, 60-year-old human, and giving it to them for a limited amount of time, something like 90 days, um, and then stopping the rapamycin. And the drug was found to actually extend the mouse lifespan by 40%. So that's actually... You know, I mean, in a human, that would be something like maybe 35 years of life extension. So I think that there will be things along the way that will help us to stay younger, not to age as aggressively as perhaps we do today, um, and that one of these developments will build on another, and then we will, many of the people alive today will reach the point where we have really radical life extension through technologies such as nanomedicine. Mm -hmm. In the near future, would we be able to utilize stem cells with uh, nanotechnology, as in using nanotechnology to drive stem cells or whatever into the human body and allow something to grow, like insert it into or whatever into the kidneys and regrow kidneys, something like that? Well, I think that's one of the most exciting areas of science right now. And um, uh, certain uh, tissues have already been grown in the lab uh, using stem cells, and uh, whole bladders have been grown that function, that have been transplanted into animals, and that actually do what they're supposed to do. Um, I think that uh, this is a really exciting area. 
stem cells are going to be combined with other technologies, uh, such as the artificial kidney, where you, there are certain things that uh, human cells do better than anything that we can design at this point. So by incorporating those cells um, into other technologies and combining them in the right way might potentially do that. But there's also the hope that in the future we'll be able to grow more organs uh, using stem cells that are taken from the patient's body. And the reason why this is so exciting is not, not only because you have a brand-new functioning organ, but those cells would be perfectly genetically matched to the patient and cannot be rejected. So you would have, if you, if you grew your, an organ from your own cells, that actually would be a permanent implant. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that's take me back to a movie I once saw of, uh, what was it called? Uh, the Island, I believe it was, of uh, a Dr. Sign- Moreau? <laughs> something the like that. The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> it, it was something like that. It was an island, a medical facility that was growing clones of rich human beings in any time the rich beings became ill, like cancer or anything else, they would come uh-huh. and claim their clone. They would take the brain out of the clone, replace, practically kill that clone, and replace the brain. So uh, it's not going to be exactly like that, but we will be growing a farm of body parts. That's almost what it sounds like, right? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, you're not going to grow another human being because if you clone a human being, um, and, and, and clones are, all they are simply is they're twins, they're identical twins. So we already have clones in nature. Um, if you had an adult person and you cloned their DNA to create another whole person, that person would start at the embryo stage, so you would have to wait for that person to grow up and mature. And aside from the social and legal problems you would have with actually (laughs) killing somebody, you know, to harvest their organs, I think what's more uh, realistic is that what we'll be doing is uh, taking cells from the person and just taking, say, for example, uh, kidney stem cells or neural stem cells and growing them in the lab uh, to the size and functionality that you want them to be at the time of transplant and then transplanting those into the person. I don't think this is anything, I don't think anybody's working on actually cloning human beings at this point. But, I mean, the technology is very promising. Yes. Let's hope not, at least. That would be terrifying. Well, it would be terrifying, and it's not something that uh, uh, we want to do. I mean, I think most people, if you ask them, would you like to be cloned, I don't think most people would say, I don't think I want another person, you know, exactly like me walking around. (laughs) Sometimes on a busy work day, I wish I had a clone. But I, I, I think what we're looking at is organs, tissues, uh, and body parts, um, which would be, you know, genetically matched and mm-hmm. could outperform any kind of transplant. Would we be doing that at the very beginning stages of life, such as after birth, taking stem cells from uh, the umbilical cord, or would we start when the person is 10 years or 15 years of age to start growing new body parts for them in case they need it? Well, you know, uh, people actually started saving their child's uh, umbilical cord blood uh, quite a few years ago. I I would say around the mid-2000s, a lot of people started to save those, uh, freeze and, and, and bank the umbilical cord blood of their children. And I think that was a really good move. And I certainly, if I were having a baby in this day and age, I would do that. Um, you know, there's different sources of stem cells, and they may have different potential. So there's stem cells that are, uh, you know, pluripotent, meaning that they can become any cell type of the human body. And so far, we've found them in embryonic stem cells. Uh, that's not the same thing as umbilical cord stem cells. The umbilical cord stem cells may not have uh, complete pluripotency where they can become any cell type in the human body, but through the right kind of cell cultures and the right kind of coaxing, uh, we may be able to turn them into a very large array of different types of stem cells 
um, and use those, uh, whether it's to grow, you know, tissue, whether it's to grow new heart tissue when somebody has a damaged heart or to grow new neural tissue if someone has uh, brain damage or, or, or some kind of neurodegenerative disease. Um, those cells have, are, are they, they obviously have a lot of uh, versatility. We don't know how far we can go with adult stem cells, but it's been very, very promising. And, and, and I mean, fat cells, adult fat cells have been turned into uh, very uh, versatile, multipotent stem cells. Hmm. So I think if we can just learn how to work with these cells um, correctly, that there, there's a tremendous amount of potential there. Mm-hmm. Speaking of fat cells, I I remember in your book you mentioned how scientists have pinpointed the fat gene and have been able to turn it off in mice, but should we go there for a human being? Should we be manipulating a gene that tells us whether we're dormant in life, indulging our appetite a little bit too much, or maybe that we have serious health issues? Should we be turning off something that might be beneficial to us to realize something's wrong? Well, that's a good point, and and I think that we need to be cautious going forward in whether or not we actually switch on or off genes in human beings. Um, but you raise an interesting point, and that's that uh, there's a lot of research going on in animals that don't age, either don't age or age very, very slowly. Um, and the goal behind this kind of research is that eventually at some point, scientists will be able to isolate little snippets of DNA that code for aging, say, for example, Mm -hmm. or for uh, obesity, for example. And then they may be able to take these animal snippets of DNA and insert them into human cells so that they will become incorporated into the human genome, into the individual's genome, um, and then be able to treat aging that way. That, that's definitely a possibility. It's called uh, data mining, uh, you know, nature data mining. And um, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of species out there. Uh, not all of them age the way we do. Uh, there's a species of a aquatic creature called a hydra that doesn't age at all, and there's an octopus that actually is able to revert to an infantile state wow. over and over <laughs> and mature and grow and become an adult and then revert again and again and again, and it basically is immortal until it's killed by some type of predator or accident. So... Um, you know, this is exciting, and um, I think it's going to go forward, and I, I, I think we need to be careful, obviously. You know, when you're changing the genome, you may be affecting one thing that you're not intending to affect, and I, and I think we have to be very careful about that. Uh, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Mm-hmm. You know what I would like to see eventually happen is for them to do uh, something to our genetics to create a uh, Benjamin Button human being. We are born old <laughs> and get younger. Wouldn't that be great? It would be, be until wonderful. you get to the baby stage, and who's going to take care of you? Well, that's the thing. You'd have to fix it so that you only <laughs> went back to the age of 18 and then start the process over again. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> now with nature data mining, uh, and this is going to be a huge ethical issue, religious issue, what's the possibility that scientists could one day create a mythological creature, half-human, half-beast? Very unlikely, uh, just because, uh, you know, the genomes of the various species are very, very different. So um, I don't know that that's possible. However, uh, you know, it is possible and legal to create uh, chimeras in the lab. So when you're talking... Uh, you know, very uh, tiny species, species that might be, uh, well, for example, you can, you can take genes from a, a jellyfish and transplant them into a dog or a cat, hmm. and they will glow in the dark. So the genes that code that allow uh, jellyfish to glow in the dark can be isolated and and then inserted into other animals that will then show that trait. Um, I don't think you could cross a jellyfish with a cat because the two species are so radically different. 
And, you know, I mean, I think nature actually does have some limits. I think we can do some limited work in this area. I'm not sure you can actually cross a man and a sheep and come up with a Dr. Moreau's Island (laughs) scenario, um, you know, where you have like a 50-50 type of creature. Darn it, I was hoping to become (laughs) Spider-Man. Well, you might be able to spin webs. I mean, that might be possible. haven't really looked into that one. Well, I'm not sure I'd like where it was going to come out of. If it was going to come out of my hands, that'd be one thing, but that's not where it comes out of spiders, so. (laughs) All right. With the future technologies for expanding beyond human, how would that affect individuals with Alzheimer's disease? Well, um, you know, that's that's a big uh, issue to consider when you talk about life extension. And I think no one would want to have radical life extension and, and have Alzheimer's disease. Mm-mm. So um, there is work going on, though, that's really uh, very different. Uh, you know, we've had drugs in the past that kind of work uh, for a period of time on Alzheimer's, and then they stop working. So we don't really have any super effective therapy to prevent or stop or cure Alzheimer's. But I interviewed a doctor who is working on something called deep brain stimulation. And this is something that people with um, epilepsy and Parkinson's have been getting for years and years. Um, It entails, uh, it's slightly invasive. It entails uh, inserting a tiny, tiny little wire into a certain part of the brain. Um, and then uh, sending mild electrical pulses through that wire to stimulate that part of the brain, a special part of the brain. Um, That's worked very, very well in people with epilepsy and Parkinson's. It's helped to reduce tremors and things along that nature. Mm. What it does is it stimulates certain neurons, and you have neurons that have specialized purposes. So, for example, in a Parkinson's patient, um, what they're missing is the neurons, uh, neuronal activity that creates the, ne- the uh, neurotransmitters, uh, dopamine. So if you, can, if you can somehow stimulate those cells, the cells that are underperforming, and get them to, to secrete dopamine and to, you know, pass it on to other, st- other uh, brain cells, then you really have made a big uh, uh, you know, improvement in functionality. Now, what the doctor that I interviewed is doing is he's doing the same sort of thing with Alzheimer's patients. So he's inserting, he's identified a part of the brain um, that is uh, responsible for things like uh, uh, judgment and uh, decision-making, the things that deteriorate in, in very early on in Alzheimer's disease. And so he's putting these little leads in and sending very mild electrical uh, pulses through them um, to see if this will actually uh, take the parts of the brain that are still working and protect them and keep them functioning longer. Now, you know, this is in the experimental cha- stages. This is being done in humans. Um, I, you know, my impression uh, from talking to him is that there is a good deal of promise from this research, but it's still very early. So um, we don't know if that's going to pan out. Mm-hmm. But we do know that the brain is very plastic, so the brain can rewire itself. And if you continually stimulate certain parts of the brain, Uh, the brain will respond by creating new cells, by creating new connections, and by uh, creating neurotransmitters. So theoretically, I think it's it's on solid ground, uh, but we'll see how it pans out. It's Mm -hmm. a huge issue. It is, it is. And I know a lot of people became more aware of it when uh, Michael J. Fox came out, saying that he had Parkinson's disease. And uh, I, I guess he's done a lot of work to bring that bring this issue to the forefront and try and get something done. He has, and he's a promoter of stem cell research because that's another uh, promising area for um, brain diseases. You know, it, it, neurons have been grown in the lab. I mean, we know that we can do that. 
we know that you can take neuron, neurons that were grown from stem cells in the lab and transplant them into animals' brains and that those neurons will sprout connections and kind of wire themselves into the neural circuitry and function with uh, as though they were just, uh, you know, a, a natural part of the brain. Mm-hmm. When we speak of stem cells, years ago, many years ago, well, I guess 2006 or so, what was it, 10 years ago, I think, maybe, mm-hmm. you wrote a book called Stem Cell Wars. Is there still a war when it comes to stem cells from religious groups or anybody else? Well, you know, I'm not as well-versed in that field as I used to be just because I've gone on and immersed myself in other areas. So, um, But I can tell you that the um, restrictions on research uh, were lifted uh, when President Obama came into office. So uh, at the time that that book was written, uh, you had very, very limited uh, federal funding for um, embryonic stem cell research, and that has lifted. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's it's a much better research environment now than you had 10 years ago in that field. I am a Southern Baptist. I was born and raised a Southern Baptist, but I kind of move myself away from it a little bit because you have to have an open mind to do these types of shows, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think the reason for stem cell wars, as you put it, was that there was a huge misconception on where these stem cells were coming from and if babies were going to be killed for it or etc. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the stuff I was hearing from my mother and other people that I knew in the South. It's just a huge yeah. misconception. Well, there was a lot of misinformation that was out there. Um, you know, and and what happened is the issue got co-opted by um, the anti-abortion movement, and and there was a message that um, was uh, being you know repeated over and over that um, st- you had to destroy fetuses to get stem cells, and you had to you know you know stem cell research was somehow predicated on abortion, and the reality is that. I mean, you could never have another abortion, and stem, embryonic stem cell research would still go forward. The reason that it still it still goes forward is because the cells, the, the pluripotent cells that I talked about, mm-hmm. um, actually are taken from very, very early stage embryos. So you're talking a fertilized egg in the very first few days of, of uh, cellular division, and these are obtained from IVF clinics. So IVF clinics, as you probably know, when, when people go through fertility treatments, they create many more embryos than the person will ever implant. So usually what happens is that the couple will implant a certain number of embryos, and uh, when they have the number of children that they want, um, the leftover embryos, so to speak, are disposed of. And so, you know, there was a a lot of push in the scientific community to say, instead of disposing of these embryos, why don't we use them for stem cell research? And that's kind of the connection to birth. Um, You may or may not be in favor of uh, using those embryos for research, but um, it, it is not something that you you would predicate on abortion. If you if you had a you know say a three month old fetus, they wouldn't have pluripotent stem cells. They mm. it, it, it's you're gone beyond that stage. So there was a lot of mi- misunderstanding and a lot of confusion about the topic for quite a while. Yes, Eve. If you were at a stage in your life where you had the ability to enhance yourself to live another 100, 200, 300 years, what would you do? Because I know it's an ethical issue. It's an issue that each individual would have to discuss with their family members. But mm-hmm. what would you do? Well, I what I would do if the technology were there mm-hmm. um, is I, I would opt for a nanotechnology treatment. Um, that's when you're talking really advanced technology. And it's actually a lot more simple than it sounds. It, nanotechnology is using very, very tiny, I mean infinitesimally tiny uh, uh, machines, robots, uh, for example, that are created out of polymers and other artificial materials. And um, these, these 
are actually on the atomic level. So we're even going below the molecular level. On the atomic level, these little bots, the plan, the theory is that they can be released in the bloodstream. They will contain a perfect um, roadmap, so to speak, of your DNA, a perfect plan of your DNA, um, they will go in, they will enter cells and they will find instances of uh, broken DNA, uh, you know, places where genetic mistakes have been made. These are the things that contribute to aging and they would rebuild your cells from the inside out. And they would do this throughout your whole body. They would destroy, they would, um, they would repair cells, then they would repair organs, then they would repair your whole body. So, I think that life extension really only becomes meaningful uh, when you can arrest the aging process. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to live a, a very long time in a very advanced stage of aging, I don't think anybody would choose that. To me, it all depends on how far the science gets in my lifetime. But I would live, I would, I would like to stay younger and live uh, considerably longer than the lifespan. I feel like I have a lot of things I'd like to do, a lot of things on my bucket list um, that, I, that I could do if I could just possibly live a few more decades. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's, it all depends on how things pan out in the next uh, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say I would love to be two, live to be 200 years of age, but, but as I progress, I lost my father in 2015. As I progress and I lose more people that I've loved, uh, I'm mm -hmm. not sure that I'd want to be 200 years removed from the last time I saw somebody that I loved. You know what I mean? I absolutely do. And I think a lot of people would feel that way. People who've lost spouses um, who say, well, no, you know, I, I would want to be with my spouse. I don't want to live another 60 years without him or her. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's a valid choice that should be available to anybody who wants to take it. And one of the things that I write about in my book that was very important to me is that people should always have the right to decide to reject enhancement so or life extension, and there should be no stigma attached to that. I think there's a whole number of valid reasons why people would want to do that. On the other hand, I think people should be allowed to embrace it. I don't think. I think what we need is something that um, uh, the Scandinavian philosopher Anders Sandberg calls morphological freedom. So morphological freedom is the freedom to do to your body or change your body in any way that you choose. So I think if we protect that ability uh, for people on either side and all sides of this issue, uh, we'll be on safe ground. Mm -hmm. If or when we as a society decide to take this path down the enhancement of humanity, would we not be removing an aspect of humanity from the homo sapiens species? Well, we might be. Uh, we don't know because we haven't done it yet, but... Um, Certainly, theoretically, that's possible, and um, and I think that takes us in the direction of what I uh, uh, call transhumanism. Uh, transhumanism used to be kind of a out there, kind of crazy, uh, you know, uh, counterculture kind of uh, a theory that people would actually change themselves to the point where we would no longer be Homo sapiens. However, I think conventional medicine. Conventional research is taking us in the direction that we may very well change the whole species. And I, I, and I think what we've seen up until this point, as amazing as it is, um, is going to just uh, increase in, you know, exponentially. So as computers get stronger and, you know, science gets better and uh, uh, people get smarter in terms of how, you know, the, the research that they've been able to, uh, you know, to uh, build upon one step building on another, um, I think there is a point where we might actually become transhuman. Mm -hmm. And should we, re you know, should we embrace that? That's another question. And, and I think we need to have that conversation. We should be having that conversation now um, because we, we actually do have treatments that are um, 
people aren't told at the time that they receive, for example, uh, you know, an artificial heart or even a, a cardiac defibrillator. Uh, this is going to greatly extend your life. Uh, it's also going to greatly complicate your dying process. There are other sides of it that were that are simply not uh, in the public eye that are not really being discussed as people embrace more and more of these technologies. So, um, you know, I, I really think we need to be having a, a public discourse. I, I wish the mainstream media covered these types of issues more often um, because people do need to know. Your doctors aren't telling you everything that you need to know. They may not understand it themselves, um, but there's research out there and there's people who study these issues and, and a lot of these issues have been identified and isolated and I think that we need to be having a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. What do you think the um, mental capacity or the, uh, let's see here, what the mental state would be of somebody who decided to become transhuman? Because I, I know at some point or another you were working for the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, so what do you think the mental state would be of someone who might have put themselves into a scientific study to replace their heart, their lungs, etc., with mechanical or artificial organs. Do, do you think their mental state would change, that they might not feel that they are human anymore, or what? Well, I think that um, it strikes at the heart of how we define a human being. I, I, you know, for example, the traditional ways of defining a human being um, number one, having a human genome has been one of the touchstones of how we define human. But if we were, for example, to take snippets of DNA uh, from other species to retard aging or cure disease, um, then the genome isn't 100% human. <laughs> um, that's not something that we really talk about, but I think as these technologies mature, and as more and more people adopt them, uh, we are going to need to start thinking about what is it that defines a human being. And if I have these technologies, at some point will I become more machine than human? Well, I, I, I think that it's possible that some people at some point will. The question is, will they see themselves differently? Will other people see them differently? Um, you know, I, I wrote about a case uh, um, of a woman who did receive an artificial heart uh, for a number of months, and um, this heart was uh, being used as a bridge to transplant, so it wasn't a permanent implant. But um, she had a device implanted in her chest, and then she had to have a, uh, you know, a, a hose, basically, uh, connected to an open wound in her body, uh, that went to a driver that she wore in a backpack. Um, this machine made a constant sound. I mean, you could hear the sound of it swishing. It sounded like a heartbeat. Um, and it made various noises that other people found disturbing. And, and she said it did create some awkward social situations. And, uh, you know, not everybody was willing to accept uh, that uh, without being a little bit uh, freaked out by it. So, um, yeah, I think those are important issues. And you bring up the issue of mental health because that's another really super important issue here if we're going to extend life. I don't think a person who has severe depression, for example, would necessarily want to live another 100 years. So, again, we need to work on curing and helping and treating and managing some of these illnesses to make radical life extension meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Over the next several years, 10, 15, whatever years it's going to be, how are we going to make sure that these necessities, these needed artificial organs, medicines, that they are going to be affordable to individuals when in today's age, I mean, just recently we've heard where... Uh, Companies, CEOs are increasing medications and uh, glucose strips, et cetera, over 400%. They're putting profits over helping other people. So how are we going to combat that and make sure that these needed items are going to get into the hands of people who need them? 
Well, you know, uh, we need to keep in mind that uh, since the beginning of medicine, uh, people who have money have always been the first ones to receive whatever innovation was coming along. And then over time, they slowly trickle down to the rest of the masses. Um, But there's already an enormous tension in our medical system that has to do with disparities. And we don't have, in in this country at least, we don't have universal coverage. So here we do have a problem, and I think that it is going to be something that's um, going to entail uh, reexamining our medical system and reexamining the way we distribute it. However, if we have universal access, as Canada and Britain and a lot of other countries have, um, and these technologies are covered by universal health care, uh, then you won't have the disparity problem so much. But it's a huge problem in this country, and I think that's something that we need to, uh, we need to evaluate uh, ways and, uh, you know, how, how we get all of the people who need medical care insured for one thing and how we get insurance companies and drug companies and the purveyors of medicine uh, to, to operate on a fair basis and not to gouge people who, who desperately need their treatments. So it, it is a big problem, and I don't know what the answer is. I honestly don't know what uh, the short-term answer is, but I do think looking forward maybe decades from now um, that this, this type of in- technology is going to put pressure on the system like never before. Mm-hmm. So if you have some people who can live to be, say, 160 years old and other people are dying at the age of 75, I think that's going to put tremendous pressure on the system. Yes. And, 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 a, and part of the solution may be political. It mm-hmm. just may be political. So um, I don't know what the answer is, but I think that there will be an answer, and I think it will come out of uh, hard-earned experience over the next uh, few decades. In the book Brave New World, we see that advancements in technology, medical, etc., that they cause or that they can cause new and worse problems to arise. Could cutting-edge technology cause the mass extinction of Organic humans, the, the current day humans, that if we were to enhance human beings and say 25% of the humans take these enhancements, could there be new illnesses, new diseases that are born to tackle the new enhanced humans that, that might just be like a small cold to them, but to us, it's going to completely wipe us out? Well, obviously, you know, the potential is there for these sorts of things to happen. Um, a lot of it depends on how we uh, solve these problems, these bioethical problems, step by step as we go forward. Um, and as, uh, you know, having uh, things like artificial organs inevitably will create issues that we may not be able to anticipate today. And, and you know, we have to, on a level, say, okay, we know that we're going to have issues that we can't predict. Will we or won't we be able to solve them? So I think the decision there, it is a decision. It's a decision of whether we go forward with a certain level of faith and confidence um, that we will solve these problems as we go along, um, or if we decide, no, we don't really trust people to solve those problems, so we're going to shut down research. I don't think that's a realistic uh, option. I I think if the technology exists, there will be a demand for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and especially when you have a for-profit medical system like we have in America, I think if the if people can stave off disability um, and death, those are those are very compelling needs and. You cannot really turn that off. I, I think people will demand the technology and the cutting edges, uh, the cutting edge of technology, uh, as long as it exists and as long as the possibility is there. So I happen to be one of those people who thinks that, um, well, ultimately, I think we can make a lot of mistakes, but ultimately, I I do have a certain level of confidence that we will be able to harness these technologies and use them appropriately. Mm -hmm. One thing that was coming to my mind as I was reading your book, there's nothing in your book about this. My mind works strangely. It's one of those stranger things. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> is that I was wondering if in the future we could get rid of the racial divide, as in genetically change the DNA of every single human being, introduce all racial DNAs into each person. Like we can create a child that is Caucasian, African-American, Asian, whatever you will, and that gets rid of the racial issues. Well, you know, I happen to be an optimist. <laughs> um, so, you know, my my thoughts on the matter are probably a little bit skewed in the direction of, uh, you know, being optimistic. But, um, uh, you know, people are actually doing that already, you know, in, just in terms of intermarriage. Mm -hmm. We have more intermarriage today than we ever had. We have more children who are, are, are racially mixed than have ever existed in the history of the world. And I think as we continue to see, um, you know, massive migrations of people so that, you know, the people of Europe have actually have a, quite a few uh, Africans and uh, Middle Eastern people and people of other um, Asian uh, races that are moving into Europe. So I think over time, uh, especially if we continue to have the right kind of social climate, that more and more people will uh, intermarry and have children of mixed race, and that eventually over a long period of time, race will become completely me meaningless. It, it just won't be an issue. Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that's the way it is. I personally have Native American blood in me. I'm Irish, Scottish, English, etc. And I was raised around uh, African Americans all my life. I, I love them just like they were my family members, some of them. Mm -hmm. That's just the way I was raised. So w when I see this huge racial divide, when I became of age and I got out in the real world, it was a huge, it just blew my mind because that wasn't mm -hmm. the way I was raised. And I wish more people could see the way I see things, that there's no real difference between us and other people. Oh, the difference is so tiny, so minuscule. I mean, even, um, you know, for the scientists who study race, um, the genetic differences between uh, a, a Northern European and, say, an American Indian are so infinitesimal. I mean, they're far less than 1%. We have very few changes, very, very few differences between us. And, you know, the problem is social. The problem really is social because if we can accept the fact that um, we're, we're all one big melting pot, and actually you talked about your heritage, and that, that's very interesting because, you know, 200 years ago, you would not have seen people who have that kind of mix mm -hmm. in their heritage. The United States was a huge experiment in that respect. We're, we're mixing. We, we don't consider, you know, Irish and, and um, French as a mixing races, but genetically we are. So, I mean, you know, I, I think that's already happening and nothing terrible has happened. I think your American people have a, have a very rich genetic history, and that's been very good for us. Um, and I think that's a good thing, and I think we'll see more of it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. In your book, again, it's beyond human how cutting-edge science is extending our lives. You do discuss how nanotechnology, I believe it is, could be going into our brain and enhancing our intelligence, maybe helping us think. But what's the potential of somebody hacking into the nanotechnology and taking over your thoughts? Well, this is a huge uh, problem, and um, you know. I think we all know by now that there is no such thing as cybersecurity. Um, to make matters a little more complicated, um, all the implants that people are receiving, whether they're uh, cardiac devices or brain implants or artificial organs um, or mo other kinds of monitoring of devices, are creating a data stream that data stream is going into your electronic health record eventually. So there's a movement in medicine now to put everything into an electronic record. As we accept these implants, and over time, those records will contain a huge amount of data about us. Um, 
that includes brain implants. I mean, you can put uh, uh, in, there are brain implants being de- being developed by the U.S. military uh, to treat traumatic brain injury that will actually enhance memory. Um, well, they do that, but they also submit uh, information wirelessly. They transmit uh, information wirelessly. So anything that is transmittable is hackable. And that is a problem, and I don't know that we have an answer to that. I think that's another question um, that we need to be looking very carefully at, is who has access to the most intimate information about us, and that is what's going on in our brains. Because implants are now being developed that not only read brain signals and, and deliver pulses and cause changes in the brain, but also receive signals from the brain and also are are able to, on some level, create a database that tells other people, potentially, maybe not specifically what our thoughts are, um, but something along those lines, something close enough that we we should be concerned, and I, I think it is a concern. I, I don't have the answer to that, but I, it's something. It's another issue that uh, is so much bigger than all of this. It's a it's a huge issue going forward in the future in every level. It's also interesting, but it's it can be scary if it's in the wrong hands. Like you said, there's an ethical dilemma potentially, and we have to get around that. We have to figure out what the best options are, how we're going to handle each situation to uh, decide what the laws are going to be, what's the boundaries. Absolutely. I mean, there should be a bill of rights for patients um, who have uh, electronic data in existence about their, uh, about their biological and even their mental processes. I think we need a bill of rights, and um, it's something that uh, definitely should be looked at. And I, I'm a little disappointed that, uh, uh, you know, there isn't uh, in the political season, that there isn't more discussion about these types of technologies and the need to create some kind of regulatory infra- infrastructure um, not only nationally but internationally um, to to basically harness and contain and keep this information safe and out of the wrong hands. I'd have to assume that the average person, whether they're the average American or elsewhere, that they're just not aware that this technology is even being brought to light, that it's just not being discussed, so therefore they don't know anything about it, and that's why it's not being discussed politically. Absolutely, it's not, and um, you know, and that's that's something that our our journalistic community also needs to pick up on. I think uh, it is reported on. It, it the, the this information is out there and it's discoverable, um, but most people don't know that it exists. So how do you go out looking for something that you don't know exists? Um, that's a real problem, I, and you know, it, it is something that people need to educate themselves about because I think in the future, inevitably, we will be creating regulations to control this technology. And if you're going to be, you know, an educated voter uh, in a system like ours, you really need to have a basic understanding of the science and, and where it's going. Mm-hmm. Yes. Speaking of educated voters, I um, heard something, what was it, that a lot of voters aren't educated, that they just vote for whoever's at the very top of the list. That's a poor decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not an educated system. You know, that's that's the problem. And I I honestly, you know, that's a whole other show. We We could talk about that for another hour. Um, but it's true. I mean, there is a, a dearth of, uh, of understanding out there um, about where the technology is, and that was going to, uh, you know, greatly impact those of us who are alive today. Yes, it will. Well, Eve, I've definitely appreciated that you came here with us this evening. It's been truly fascinating. I love your book. Again, it is Beyond Human, How Cutting-Edge Science is Extending Our Lives. And, folks, I, I definitely recommend that you read this book It is available through Amazon and uh, I guess through most other bookstores, right, Eve? Yeah, it's out there and uh, it's in Barnes & Noble, but you can order it easily on Amazon. Eve, before we go, is there anything you would like to share with the audience? 
Um, no, I think we've pretty much touched on the important issues, and uh, you certainly, uh, you know, brought up the bioethical side of things, and that I think is the side that uh, people need to get engaged in. I mean, even if you're, you know, the average person isn't going to sit down and read a scientific paper. Um, but if you understand that these these really hit home, I mean, these issues do hit home, and there are ethical, uh, you know, decisions to be made that can very intimately affect uh, affect you on a personal level, um, and you need to know about that. Mm-hmm. One more thing that just came to mind when we we're talking about transhumanism and nanotechnology, how it can change our lives with stem cells, etc. Would this make it easier for people who think that they have been born in the wrong body to physically change, to change from male to female physically? You know, if, for example, and I mean, this is just pure speculation, Mm -hmm. but for example, if you could create artificial glands uh, that actually do uh, generate hormones and transplant those into people, then potentially you could. I mean, now we have people who are transgendered who take hormones, but... If you had a gland, if you had an artificial gland in your body that was creating testosterone on a regular basis, surely that would be more effective than just giving yourself a shot every so often. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, I mean, it's possible. Anything's possible at this point. Um, I think the important thing is that uh, we know where we're going with this. We understand that, you know, when you make changes like that to your body, most of them are not reversible. So I think that's where the conversation needs to be on that, is that, yes, we will have much more effective ways of doing all of these things, but because they're so effective, they won't be reversible. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Eve Harold. Eve's book is Beyond Human, How Cutting-Edge Science is Extending Our Lives. And again, if you are interested in reading the book, you can go to mysteriousmatters.com slash beyondhuman. So, folks, what do you think? After listening to this program, what do you think about extending our lives, becoming beyond human? Would it be like where we may be enhancing ourselves? We might be changing humanity, but for the worse. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, until the next time we do come back together, I wish you all a kind farewell.